Well, someone said I should uh, say a little bit more about who I am. Uh, well, I uh, practiced for a long time at San Francisco Zen Center, uh, where I lived uh, mostly at Tassajara, uh, Zen Mountain Center in Los Padres National Forest, and at Green Gulch uh, Zen Center over in Marin by Muir Beach. And uh, I was abbot there from uh, until 2000 for about five years, and then I retired and uh, moved away. And and I live nearby, near Beach. And in 2000, when I retired, I started uh, a network of Zen groups and related projects for um, applying Zen meditations and teaching to different walks of life and various things that I got involved in. And it's called Everyday Zen Foundation. And we have a website with that name, if you're interested to look. And... Uh, I was ordained as a Zen priest in 1980, and uh, I'm married and have two children who are grown up and a grandson. It's very cute. So, yes, that's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true that Brian thinks I'm a great writer. <laughs> Poet, yes. That's right. Also, also. So, uh, that's why I thought I would give you uh, a Zen talk tonight. I'll talk about a Zen story. And also, uh, one thing I should say is that I'm, I'm actually uh, good friends with James. Dear old friends. We were in a group together for many years and saw a lot of each other. Now, that group sort of disbanded, so we don't see as much of each other as we used to, but we go back a long way. So, uh, this is one of my favorite Zen stories. In fact, uh, it's the story that uh, we take the name of our groups from every day then. It's a story about Zhao who was, uh, whose uh, biography is rather extraordinary in the history of Zen. He met his teacher when he was about 20 years old and immediately knew that this was the person he should study with and that he should stay with this person, Nanchuan, uh, all his life. Uh, and, and he did. He stayed with, with Nanchuan in the monastery for 40 years. Uh, when Nanchuan died, Zhao was 60, and he said, uh, I feel like I'm just beginning my path, and now it's time for me to go on pilgrimage and learn. So at the age of 60, he kind of went forth on pilgrimage to visit many teachers and to learn about the world. And he said very famously when he, when he started that pilgrimage that he said, if I meet a young girl of seven years old who has something to teach me, I will certainly listen to her. And if I meet an old person of very wise and high in the hierarchy who I need to straighten out, I'll straighten that person out. E e either way, I'll be open. And so with that attitude, he went forth. And he was on pilgrimage for 20 more years. When he was 80, he said, well, I guess I'm finally ready to see if I have anything to share. So he began um, 
inviting people to come practice with him. And he lived, uh, they say, to be 120. So he had 40 years of uh, sharing teachings and practice with with uh, students. And the story that I want to tell you is from the very beginning of his practice when he was young and he was with Nanchuan. One day, Chajar asked Nanchuan, what is the way? And Nanchuan said, everyday mind is the way. Chajar said, if, if everyday mind is the way, how could I direct myself to it? Nanchuan said, if you direct yourself to it, you'll be going in exactly the wrong direction. Well, uh, Nanchuan maybe, maybe thought this over for a while. Oh. Okay. Yeah. Nanchuan, uh, thought this over for a while. Uh, the stories are telescopes, so we don't know if he thought it over for a few minutes or a decade or more. We don't really know. But eventually, uh, he, he came back and said, but if I don't direct myself toward it, how could I ever know it? And Nanshwan said, uh, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is an exaggeration. Not knowing is just stupidity. Once you really enter the way, you'll see that it's as vast and boundless as space. What does this have to do with yes or no thinking? And, and at that, Jaja really did understand Nanshan's meaning. So I think uh, the sense stories really are not so hard to appreciate and understand. Jojo's question, what is the way, is really beautiful in its simplicity. It's like a child asking, you know, why is the sky blue? Uh, if you're a monk like Jojo, your whole life is the way. That's all there is, is the way. You know, you get up in the morning and you meditate and you chant, uh, you read texts, you hear lectures, you engage in dialogue. Everything in your life is the way. There's nothing else but the way. It's just like the sky overhead. So it's kind of an amazing thing to say, you know, why is the sky blue? You know, what is the way? The sky uh, is present for all of us, but mostly we don't notice it. We take it for granted. So you got to appreciate Jaja for questioning something so all-pervasive. We're doing this every day, but why are we doing it all? Why are we wearing robes? Why are we chanting? Why are we meditating? What's it all about? The Chinese word for way, I'm sure you all know, is Tao. And uh, it's a crucial uh, word in, in Chinese thought, a word that was already 
spiritually current long before Buddhism ever came to China. And it means path or method, way. But it also means uh, essence, truth, reality. Uh, Taoism, China's ancient religion, sees the Tao as the way of nature, the way of reality, the way things are, the way of truth. In Western thought, there's a big difference between process and, and substance. Process is method, means. Substance is the end, the goal. So, really, the important thing is the substance, the goal. But uh, in China, from ancient times, truth and reality was not seen as essence or substance. It was seen as way, process. This seems to be a deep thought in Chinese culture. It's more about how than what or even why. How do we live? How do we get along? So it makes sense that in Chinese culture, metaphysical concerns would be expressed with this word Tao or Wei, which is really more about a journey than a destination. In Indian thought, in, in Buddhism, before it encountered Chinese culture, uh, there also is a word for path, marga, means path, but Buddhism is more like Western thought. You know, Indian thought is more like Western thought. There's a goal of Buddhism, nirvana, which is not a way. It's a state or a substantial uh, destination. But in Chinese uh, Buddhism, the word Tao includes both the destination and the goal. So Jaja was really saying, how do I practice? But also, what is real? What is true? I really admire Shazha for the pure innocence of his question. And, and maybe you have to be innocent, even to the point of being naive, to actually devote yourself to spiritual practice. Maybe you never thought about this, but the Buddha was, was that way. It's always struck me that the Buddha must have been really naive, you know, almost childish to have thought, as the story tells us he did, sickness, old age, and death are really big human problems. I think I'll go forth now and solve this. I don't know how I'm going to do it. I don't know, you know, you know, even where to begin, but I'm sure that I can, you know, go forth and leave everything behind and figure this out. This is either supreme arrogance or, you know, incredible naivete. You know, you and I would never think of doing such things. We're, we're far too realistic and sophisticated. We would never ask ultimate questions, we would never ask, you know, what is really real? What is truly true? How are we supposed to live? How are we supposed to make effort in this life? You know, we would never really entertain those questions because we've all been too shaped by, and maybe the word would be scarred by, 
the so-called real world, to even dream of asking questions like that and devoting ourselves to them. Growing up, I think, means exactly that, letting go of these naive questions and replacing them with more practical questions like, how can I improve my health and financial security? Which is mostly what we're concerned with. Or if we're more idealistic, how can I find what I really want in this life? And once I find it, hold on to it. But in the end, you know, I don't really believe that we're like that. Because I think however buried in us he or she may be, I think there is that person in all of us that has the innocence of a Zhaozhou or a Buddha. There is that person in all of us who really wants to have courage to ask ultimate questions. The person inside of us that realizes that our survival as true and real human beings depends on our asking these kinds of questions and exploring them with all our hearts, pouring our lives into them and dedicating ourselves to them. I think we all understand that limiting our lives to what's practical and doable as it appears in the world, is there's something wrong with that that won't serve us. If we don't have dreams, if we don't have imagination, if we don't have impossible and transcendent hopes, who are we? We have to ask these questions. We have to seek these answers. Whether or not we find them almost doesn't matter. So, maybe we're not so on. We're Joshua in the story asking this question. And the response that we receive is so beautiful. Everyday mind. What's the way? Everyday mind is the way. Which is not the answer we were expecting, probably. It's kind of astonishing, you know. It's the opposite of what we would expect. The truth, the essence, the way, the path. Certainly, it must be something lofty and removed some profound insight we never heard of before, some secluded and exalted state of mind. But no, everyday mind is the way. Nothing more, nothing less. Again, in Chinese, the etymology of the word used here for ordinary or normal is kind of interesting because it, it, it's something that is uh, normal, repeated, constant. And therefore, in a way, eternal. This is kind of amazing when you think about it. You know, what would be eternal? What would be eternal must be the most common thing. The thing that's repeated over and over and over again without end. The sun coming up, the sun going down. Moments of time succeeding one another, living, dying, 
standing up, sitting down, eating, going to the toilet, cleaning up. The way the mind is, the way consciousness flows, its function daily. These things are profound, right, and eternal. This is the way. You don't need to look for something more. Looking for something more is just a distraction. I find that uh, people who take up a spiritual practice uh, usually have a good reason for it. Something more than mere curiosity. And the reason is usually something negative. Some difficulty that drives us to it. Maybe we've had some suffering, some trouble. Maybe the suffering and the trouble have been strong enough to make it absolutely impossible for us to go on with our lives as they were. Or maybe it's not like that. Maybe actually we're doing fine. But when we really get quiet and reflect we realize that we're just doing fine on the surface. Inside, there's a feeling of incompleteness. Something maybe we were we ignored for a long time, but the time comes when we can't ignore it anymore. Or maybe we just got old enough, and you don't really have to be all that old, to realize that we're actually going to die. It's not just a rumor. It's the truth. And it's alarming. And the more we consider it seriously, the more we realize it doesn't really make sense. You don't know how to cope with it. We don't know what it means. And we don't know how to live in the face of it. Anyway, whatever reasons we have, whether it's something like this or something entirely different. Usually we come with the idea that our everyday life is not the way. That it's somehow insufficient, unsatisfactory, and we're looking for something deeper and more real. So, we're looking for the way. What is the way? It can't be where we are now. So when we ask the question, and someone says, everyday mind is the way, this would really be surprising. You know, your ordinary life, going to sleep at night, waking up in the morning, your cup of coffee, your job, your relationships, this is the way? Come on. That's the problem. <laughs> Not the way. <laughs> but, but that's what Nanshuan says. So what's he saying? We take uh, our everyday experience so much for granted, so much that you, you can almost say we, we don't even experience it. It's like the sky, you know, we don't notice it. Our minds are so muffled all the time with our thinking and feeling, almost all of which is unconscious, 
that we only barely notice our moment-to-moment experience. Try an experiment sometime, just for a half an hour. Try to be extremely attentive to your state of mind, like what's going on all the time during that half hour. Am I, am I really here? Do I really know what's happening as the moments of my life pass away? And if you try to do that, you'll be astonished at how much of the time, if not the entire time, you, you don't know what's going on. Your mind is really muffled. Where is it? You don't even know where it is. You don't even know what you're thinking about. You're just not entirely there. Preoccupied with who knows what. I mean, of course, things are going on and you have a general impression of them. You stop at red lights and so on. You can get through the day. We all can. But how alive you know, are we, actually? How much are we really there? for the moments and days of our lives. How much do we notice the one fundamental experience, the one experience on which everything in our lives is based, the experience of being alive in time, being a living, conscious being in time. How much do we ever realize that we are that? How much do we feel that? Do we know what it actually means to be alive in time? That's what everyday mind is, isn't it? Whatever we're doing, that's what actually is going on, is we are alive in time. And that's why we have to do whatever we have to do, because to be alive in time is to be always doing something, even if it's sleeping. But how much do we notice that that's what's happening? Everyday mind actually is the way. This is not a joke. Nonchalant is not just joking. So Zaza says, but if that's true, then what am I going to do about it? How do I direct myself toward it? And Nonchalant says, if you direct yourself toward it, you'll be going in the wrong direction. Because the mind that directs and intends the mind that grasps, desires, figures things out, the mind that makes calculations, employs strategies, cannot find the way. That mind may be the way, but it cannot grasp the way. The way is always right here, and the grasping self will always miss it. Spiritual practice requires effort, it requires faithfulness, and mostly it requires trust in the unknown. That's why Nanshuan says it's not a matter of knowing or not knowing. Knowing is an exaggeration, not knowing is just stupidity. Why? Are our minds so muffled and confused? Because somehow we're always trying to know our lives, grasp our lives, to possess our lives, to have things work out the way we would like them to. Because we think we own our lives. Maybe, you know, you don't have this train of thought, but I think this is what it amounts to for all of us. 
My life is mine, and I've got to figure this out. I don't see that my life is a gift. I don't see that it actually isn't mine. I didn't earn it. I didn't produce it. And I certainly don't understand it. So knowing my life, possessing my life, directing my life, that's not right. It's an exaggeration to think we do that. On the other hand, not knowing my life, not taking possession of it, not taking responsibility for the gift I've been given, that's not right either. Heavenly ring. Celestial almost, huh? <laughs> that was uh, an impressive earthquake, huh? Yeah, I know. Yeah. yeah, it was nice that... Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I really appreciated that the building didn't fall down. Didn't you? Yeah. Yeah, nothing, nothing fell. Yeah, it was, that was really, really great. Yeah, yeah, and the building was rolling. Yeah, so that was one thing, and then the nice celestial ring was another thing. So that's life, right? One minute, the next minute. Anyway, I was in the middle of saying something, whatever it was. Anyway, uh, whatever I was saying before, I'm saying what I'm saying now is <laughs> going on with the story. Um, yeah, uh, nonchalant says when you find the way, you'll see that it's vast and boundless as space. What does this have to do with yes and no thinking? Well, did you ever think that your life is vast and boundless as space? It really is. Every seemingly limited moment of perception, emotion, thought, sensation, is actually an intense metaphor for boundless space. Even the calculating, grasping mind is boundless as space. This is true, and this stark and amazing fact that you can't ever experience in the ordinary sense of experience as something that I have. I had an experience, we say, I've, I've got an experience. You don't experience it in that sense. And it has nothing to do with all the ordinary ways that we have of conceiving of things, all our crude and unexamined yes and no thinking that always leaves us so high and dry and unsatisfied. The best way to train your mind to be able to appreciate the vastness and boundlessness of your life is to practice meditation. To sit and breathe and just train yourself to come back to your life and just pay attention. 
When you begin to notice your muffled mind, oh, uh, very exciting evening. <laughs> Are you hearing these things too, or is it just me? Maybe the thing to do would be I stop saying anything and we just listen. <laughs> See, when you look for it, it doesn't. So. You know, in Zen, we don't really think we're meditating when we're sitting here. But we're not trying to meditate, trying to do anything. We're really trying to sit here and, and in the present moment of being alive and just see what that is. Be with that. Train in that. Let our life appear. And pretty soon, uh, you know, you feel brighter. You notice uh, the texture of a fabric. The warmth of the sun on your skin, the sound of someone's voice, a beautiful ring on a telephone. And every sensation that appears brings with it the whole of life and death, if you're actually there for it. What religious experience would anybody need beyond this? Now, to be sure, sometimes everyday mind is not so pleasant. Sometimes everyday mind appears as pain and suffering. It could appear as physical pain in your body. It could appear as anger, fear, greed, worry, jealousy, confusion. If everyday mind is away, it must include all this too. And it does. So, spiritual practice is not always pleasant or happy. What happens to us when we have these various afflictive states? We want to get rid of them. We want to somehow be somewhere else. So we try to figure out, you know, why is this here? How can I... Make sure it never comes again and, and make sure that it's gone as soon as possible. And we scheme about how we're going to change conditions, get rid of the causal factors. But sometimes, maybe even always, the ultimate causal factor is oneself. And then we're trapped and frustrated because we realize we can't escape. Now what are we going to do? Everyday mind is the way. This moment of anger or frustration, this moment of grief or confusion or even physical pain, this is the way. Be there for it. What does it feel like? What does it look like? What color is it? How tall is it? Can I breathe with it? Can I be with it? 
Can I allow it to be present in my life? Can I allow it to have its own life within me? This is not usually what we, we look at it, you know. And it seems like a scary idea, mostly. I want to get rid of it. And if you ever study how you are when you have physical pain or difficult emotions arising, you see that right intimately on the heels of that arising is your resistance to it, your hatred of it. Right there. It's almost like you can't tell the difference between a pain and I want this to go away. And nonchalant is saying, that's the problem. When conditions are such that life is painful, that's the way. Don't run away. Embrace it. Allow your life to be what it is. Give it space inside. Breathe. Fear your life. So, that's, we practice with a story like this in a very simple way. We sit on our cushion and we breathe in and we breathe out and we say to ourselves, this is the way. Whatever's happening right now, this is it. Whatever it is. A sensation in my body, a thought in my mind, this is the way. And we repeat this phrase over and over again until we really train our minds to see our life in that way. And when we do, when we practice with it long enough, it really does change the way we view our lives. We stop feeling like conditions run us. And we've always got to adjust conditions or defend ourselves against conditions, which is an exhausting way to live. Of course, in an easygoing, practical way, we adjust conditions as we can. It's not like we're, we have no autonomy, no choice. But we lose the kind of desperation around that, because we realize that happiness doesn't have to do with organizing conditions that we want. It has to do with appreciating the conditions that are present. And this is always possible, no matter what the conditions are. And we have a greater and greater appreciation of this as our practice goes on. What would it feel like if we could be confident that we could appreciate even the last moment of our lives when it came. What would it be like to have full confidence that we could appreciate any moment that's coming next? What if we didn't have that anxiety and that dread? How would we live? How would the world appear to us? Well, uh, I think that the time we're living in, times we're living in, uh, oddly, are uh, very spiritual times. So I know that now, nowadays, when I give a talk, I assume that everybody already knows everything I'm saying. 
Because you do. You know, you've heard this before. I'm not, this is not news. It's not some big, wow, I never heard of that before. Of course, everybody's heard of everything before. So there's no, no big deal here or any, any mystery here. You know, there's a million online talks and videos and books and everything you ever wanted to know. There's, you know, even, I have friends who are business consultants and they're basically spiritual gurus in working in business. My dentist is a spiritual guru. Really. So this is nothing mysterious here. The trouble is, Living. That's the trick. This uh, story uh, was compiled uh, in the book called The Woman Gone, and, and the compiler of it, of that book, uh, comments on the story. He says, well, he writes a little introduction to the story. In the introduction, he, he says, though Zhaozhou real, realized something, you know, in this little story, he could confirm it only after 30 years more practice. And this was Zhaozhou's actual life. He heard this teaching of everyday mind when he was young, and he really understood it. He really got it. But that wasn't the end. That was the beginning. And he continued till the age of 120 years practicing it every day. And I'm sure every day he understood it differently and more deeply. He made this simple teaching the watchword of his whole life. And then he continued on and on sharing it with others. There's a poem about this story. Spring comes with flowers, autumn with the moon, summer a breeze, winter snow. When idle concerns don't hang in your mind, this is your best season. So that's my to talk about everyday minds the way and that's how come we call our our Zen groups and other projects uh, everyday Zen. It's a wonderful teaching because uh, it reminds us that you know we don't have to run around looking for something special. We just have to turn around right where we are and take a look at what our lives are and stop standing next to ourselves. So, thank you for listening. No more, no more bells or whistles, rings, nothing. <laughs> so we have a few minutes uh, in case uh, comments, questions. Yes, sir. Pardon me. Oh, you want the mic? Yeah, here we're passing the mic. My question, my question is if uh, this in mind is just a very concrete, you know, up of fairy water, where does Kensho and Satori fit into this particular model? 
paying attention all the time. So, um, in in uh, the style of Zen, this is st- I'm a practitioner of Soto Zen. In, in Soto Zen, uh, meditation retreats can be intense, and as you probably know, uh, we can have powerful experiences in meditation retreats or other times as well. But um, there's not an emphasis on that. The emphasis is on continuous practice and on and really on paying attention all the time. So it's not that you don't enjoy those kinds of experiences or think of them as you know, pleasant and helpful. But they're not essential. And what's essential is really being there for our lives and also our conduct, our kindness, our generosity, cultivating those qualities. That's the emphasis in Soto Zen. Yeah. Yes, can you pass the mic over? I never used the mic before. How's that? Okay. Okay. Um, I I wish I could come up with the words in a concise way to formulate the question I have. It's I'm just going to poke at it. <laughs> um, I'm everyday mind for me is has been uh, predominantly addiction, and um, I listen carefully to you. And if I were to really follow what you were saying. Um, I'm having really difficulty imagining letting addiction be just fine there. Um, it is what it is, and I just watch the addiction. Uh, I'm going nuts with the 12-step program because I just cannot, it doesn't seem like, I'm here because the 12-step program doesn't seem like the way for me. And yet, but so I just, I'm looking for something that, that will help, that, that is different than the 12-step program, or in addition to it, where it will change my, my relationship with the program. I just want to finally say, my experience of the 12-step program is that they're very clear. You've got a problem for life. You've got to come to meetings for life, and you've got to do it this way. So, uh, could you address addiction and, and in response to what I'm saying in some way, please? I really uh, respect that addiction is very difficult. Uh, I don't think that it... Um, you know, facile answers won't uh, do. It's a very, very, very difficult and tricky problem. And uh, while I, 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 the 12-step programs uh, are probably uh, conceivably the most amazing and successful religious manifestation ever, I also recognize and they're very effective for many, many people. I also recognize this is logical. They can't possibly work for each and every person, right? They couldn't. It's nothing does. 
So I appreciate that, you know, you, you, if you find that they don't work for you, that's entirely possible, maybe, maybe not. But I think that um, it's a kind of paradox that to really fundamentally change something in one's life that is, uh, you know, deeply unwholesome and, and painful and destructive, one has to first, in some way and on some level, accept that it's really so. So, in that sense, you, the paradox is you want to change the behavior is the true. And, that, and that's what the 12 steps do. You know, they start from saying, I, 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 this is an impossible problem. I can't, all my efforts to solve it have failed, and I can't solve it. The only thing I can do is trust something beyond myself. And that's probably r realistic. Now, maybe the 12-step way of doing that is no, no good for you, but some way or other, you really have to uh, accept that. Because otherwise, as long as you keep doing battle with the addiction, it somehow seems to strengthen it. And many, many people, you know, can quit drinking, smoking, or, or taking drugs for a day or two, many, many, many times, and they go back over and over again. And every time they quit and pick it up again, it only strengthens the the problem. So somehow there has to be a profound uh, turning, a profound sense of acceptance, paradoxically, in order for there to be change. Um, I... Uh, my experience so far has been that uh, meditation practice can be helpful in this, but uh, usually not sufficient. Usually just meditation practice by itself won't be enough to overcome serious uh, addiction problems. But meditation practice along with other kinds of help can make those other kinds of help a lot more um, effective. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah. For some other something else, that, that I I don't I don't accept it. No, it's just language, in the sense that. Um, if somebody, you, people go to meetings and they've been sober for 50 years, 30 years. So you could say, well, but if you've been sober for 30 years, how, how can you say you're still an alcoholic? Well, they just somehow, that language and that way of looking at it works for them. It makes sense to them and it helps them. So if it doesn't make sense to you and doesn't help you, then... You have to look at it a different way, a way that will help you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, well, I started practicing when I was very young. And uh, I was, uh, when I was a child, I was religious. I was very re religious and had a sense of the, whatever that aspect of our lives is that we call religious. And so when I 
was old enough to read books and study. I was studying all the time, interested in religion, and I found books about Buddhism. I actually didn't know that you could practice Buddhism. It's a long time ago. It's like in the 1960s. And uh, I was unaware that there was such a thing as Buddhist practice uh, anywhere, let alone in the United States. Uh, so I just read about it, and I thought, because, you know, from a Western point of view, if, if you read Kant and you believe in Kant, then you're a Kantian. That's all you have to do is read it and believe it, you know. So I thought, oh, that's all. Well, that makes sense. I'll just read this, and if I think it's a good idea, then, I, then that's all I need. But then later on, I ran into people who said, oh, no, 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 there's actually, there's a practice, and you can do, do the meditation, you can learn how to do it. And I said, really? Wow, that's great. I'm going there. So I did. I, I was living at that time in the Midwest, and I moved to California, where I heard that there was a Japanese Zen teacher. Uh, I didn't know anybody here or anything like that. I just came and uh, learned how to do the practice. And and then uh, I kept uh, I kept not being satisfied that I understood enough. So I said, well, I'll just keep doing this until... I can stop. And I'm still doing that. <laughs> so I, 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 uh, I'm not 120. And I haven't, I haven't practiced maybe as long as Jojo did, but I think it's been more than 40 years. Something like that. And I haven't worn it out yet. I haven't come to the end of it yet. When I do, I'll quit. Do something else. <laughs> Maybe one more comment if there is one, and then we'll, we'll go home. Well, thanks for all. Oh, okay, one last one last thing. Where's the mic? Oh, there he goes. Yeah. I'm, I'm in a class right now on contemplative psychology. Oh, that's excellent. <laughs> uh-huh. Oh. Isn't Thomas Merton wonderful? I read a lot of Thomas Merton. He's really great. Oh, all... There's always all kinds of interreligious dialogue going on in various places all over the, all over the world. Uh, I, I was, used to do a lot of it, uh, and uh, lately I haven't been as, as involved in it as I once was. But I know that there are multiple organizations. I think it's actually very important. Uh, in fact, the whole to me the whole question of religion is very important, and and the fact that religion has been such a force for confusion and dissension and and not a force for good and progress as it's supposed to be, as it should be, this is really bad. And so we have to have a better... Our religions need to be better. And our view of what religion is and how it functions need to be better. And tolerance and mutual respect, genuine respect, is sort of the bottom line. Right? Whenever you have... And that's why... I can relate to your saying, 
it really bothers me when they say, this is the way it is, and you have to believe that way, and if you don't believe that way, you're in denial. This makes all of us feel bad. We don't feel, this is not a good way of talking, you know. Uh, so we, we need to kind of get used to that. We need to, we need to find a way of having strength in the way that we look at the world, but also generosity, knowing that, it, that the way we look at the world is just a, a way, a good language for me, a good way for me, and maybe other people too, but there must be other ways of describing it. Otherwise, everybody would be like me, or they would all be burning in hell right now, you know, and they're not. So, that's very important. I'm glad you're doing that. And uh, I think interreligious, not not exactly dialogue, but interreligious practice. That's what I've done. I actually went some of my uh, most fun interreligious activity was spent at Thomas Merton's monastery, where I practiced for a while with the monastics there. And it was just really wonderful. It's a beautiful place. And uh, I hope to go back there sometime. So practicing together uh, is more important than talking. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for coming. I really appreciate it. And I think, is that everything? Yeah, we can, we can, it says here, we often end with a dedication of merit or the offer of metta. So, uh, on behalf of everybody here, I would like to dedicate the merit of our being together and of our sharing dharma to the ending of suffering and injustice in this world, the ending of violence and want especially, especially for children and their mothers. May uh, our being together form a drop uh, in an ocean that will overflow uh, with benefits so that there won't be any more traumatized children and there won't be any more unsupported mothers ever in the world as we go forth. Thank you for coming. Take care, everybody. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.